0: Have you ever wondered why so many women professional singers retire in their prime, but the guys just keep on going? I Googled musicians over the age of 70 who are still performing and Paul McCartney, Elton John, Marvin Gaye, Mick Jagger, the list went on and on. It was really long for the guys and really short for women. One reason is that when estrogen levels take a plunge, the change in hormones can have a significant impact on voice frequency and range. But beyond the impact on professional singers, there's also exciting new research about how our voice can tell us a lot about what's going on with our hormones and our health. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. When it comes to menopause midlife and what comes after, I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. If women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information. In 2021, I was at my favorite conference, the Menopause Society Annual Meeting. And on the schedule was a lecture titled Menopause and Voice Changes. That got my attention. I never even really thought about it. Well, that lecture made a huge impact on me. First of all, it was really fascinating, not just biologically and medically, but how hormonal changes on voice impacted careers and even the very course of history. And that's why I was so excited when the physician who presented that lecture agreed to be my guest. Dr. Cheryl Kinney is the director of the Center for Female Health and Hormone Disorders in Dallas, Texas. She's on the board of trustees of the Menopause Society and is also on the editorial board of the journal Menopause. Welcome. Welcome. And thank you for doing this. Well, thank you for having me. My first question, I mean, you're a gynecologist, you're not an otolaryngologist. So how did you become interested in the impact of menopause and hormones on voice? One of my closest colleagues is Dr. Wayne Kirkham. He's
1: an ENT here in Dallas, and he runs the Professional Voice Institute. And he was seeing a disproportionate amount of his menopausal patients who were being taken off uh, their estrogen by their doctors or by friends. And these women were elite voice professionals, and they began noticing voice changes. And so he would send them to me for counseling and appropriate therapy.
0: So that's so interesting. So he actually sent them to you because he wanted them to be on hormone therapy. And Absolutely. as an otolaryngologist, he wasn't comfortable with that. And then that immersed you in, into this whole world. What I've now learned from listening to your lecture is how hormones impact the voice really throughout, throughout life. So can you just talk a little bit about what happens at puberty f- to boys and girls? We need to think of our vocal cords as the strings of a
1: piano and the strings in the piano that are long and thick are the ones that make the really deep, low of sounds. The strings on the piano that are short and thin make those really high sounds. So all during childhood, little boys and little girls have exactly the same vocal cords. That's why all children have that kind of darling little child voice. But at puberty, under the influence of testosterone in males, the vocal cords lengthen and they thicken. And so at the end of puberty, it is often that the male voice is almost an octave lower than the male child's voice. Female vocal cords undergo a change, not because of androgens or testosterone, but because of estrogen and progesterone and estrogen and progesterone will lengthen the vocal cords a little bit, and they don't really thicken the vocal cord. That's usually testosterone, but they make the vocal cords more supple and full. And that's why the female voice is only about a third of an octave lower than the child voice.
0: One of the things that you and I share is a love of history. And it's one of the reasons that I I enjoyed your lecture so much because you started off with the 1700s when they started castrating young boys so that their voices would not change. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about that because it's, it's so interesting. Did they appreciate, did they know that this was hormonal? Did they get that connection or they just knew that when boys went through puberty, that their voices would change? I mean, they must have figured it out somehow because they were removing their testicles, right? So walk us through what what was going on back then. Doctors
1: or scientists have known that there's some connection with what was known as hormones in the voice back when Aristotle first recorded the effects of castration on a songbird. So that was long, long ago. But then throughout Asia and Spain, there were reports of young boys who either from injury or intentional, they would get, you know, testicular torsion or something like that that they would undergo castration and their pre voice was maintained. Now, the concept of testosterone as a hormone didn't even occur in the science literature until the 1800s. So this was more intuitive. And then again, in the 1600s, when women were banned from being in choirs in the church, they had to replace those was feminine voices and they then relied on the castrati and that's when castration of these 7 to 9
0: year old boys really came to a fever pitch in Europe as i recall you gave a statistic that there were in the neighborhood of 4000 boys castrated every year really <laughs> Yes, and that was so that
1: the churches throughout Europe uh, would have adequate choirs with soprano uh, voices. And again, anytime I give a historical medicine lecture, I never look back on what they did in the past with a present day microscope. I mean, one day... Doctors 200 years from now are going to look back at all the chemotherapy you and I sanctioned, and they're going to think we were terrible. So again, I try to keep everything in the historical time period it was and these castrati these young boys. Were exalted. I mean, they were like rock stars are today, and their families were well compensated and taken care of at a time when there was just abject poverty throughout Europe. The families and the castrati lived in relative luxury. Now, they were greatly appreciated historically
0: for the sacrifice that was made. And I'm just curious, who made the decision? Was it the parents? I mean, they certainly weren't asking the child. Were they recruited by the church? What? How did it come about? Uh, yeah, I would, I would use the term
1: recruitment uh, in the best light of the word. I think back then it was looked upon as having your child go in service of the church. Just like in present day, if you're daughter decides she wants to enter uh, a convent your son wanted to be a priest it was looked upon in that
0: kind of a light yeah well we're not even going to get into the fact that there was really no anesthesia back then but <laughs> the surgery itself entails I can't even imagine how painful that must have been for a child to go through it we don't even think about that part of it all right so moving on you know because we're talking about the extreme of a of a castrated young boy but I'd, I'd like to talk about some more subtle hormone shifts even during a menstrual cycle just that normal fluctuation of hormones is enough to to make a difference
1: yes the first part of our menstrual cycle is Estrogen is the predominant hormone produced and estrogen causes changes, not just in our reproductive system, but very similar changes in our vocal cords. As a matter of fact, two French physicians studied the cytology of our vocal cords and our cervix. So they did pap smears on both ends of their patients Mm. every day in a menstrual cycle. And they found that the cells were almost indistinguishable, which is remarkable when you think about it. But the point is is that the first part of our menstrual cycle, when it's very estrogen-dominant, Our vocal cords get bathed in this, and this is just one thing estrogen does, our vocal cords get bathed in this watery, thin mucus that makes them undulate in perfect symphony. In women, in the first part of their menstrual cycle, oftentimes they'll have a thin, watery vaginal discharge before ovulation. The second half of our menstrual cycle, we become more progesterone dominant in our hormone production. And progesterone causes two things that impact the voice. The first, instead of that watery, thin mucus, we get that thick, opaque, white mucus, the same thing we get in our cervical mucus. And for your listeners, if they've ever had that kind of snotty stuff come out in their panties after ovulation, that is exactly what's building up in their vocal cords in the second half of the menstrual cycle. But also progesterone causes congestion around our vocal cords, just like we get congestion in our breasts. That's what causes our breast-centeredness. We get pelvic congestion but for our period, we can get fluid congestion in our extremities. And, you know, we get water retention, essentially. So progesterone is causing in our vocal cords, the exact same thing it causes over our body. And that results in young women, that four to seven days before their period, having increased vocal fatigue, not being able to sustain especially
0: high notes, and their vocal quality overall decreases. Yes. And and you use the term grace days when you were talking about that. What's a grace day? In the 1700s, if you go back and look at the diaries in
1: opera houses throughout Europe, you'll see where the secretaries wrote in the term grace days under some performers' ledgers. And It was noted that a lot of these young performers were just refusing to perform the four to seven days before their menstrual period started. And this was every single month. That's
0: why uh, researchers picked up on it. So yet another reason to take continuous birth control pills not just for cycle control and heavy periods and cramps and menstrual migraines, but to control these changes in the voice. Do singers know that? Do singers go on, have you ever had that discussion with someone about taking, with a young woman about taking continuous birth control pills? to control the hormonal fluctuations that normally occur during a cycle? So we, Dr. Kirkham and I have
1: patients of all ages uh, that are elite voice professionals, and it isn't just our theater or opera performers, but our country Western singers and our pop singers, but so many of our patients now are voiceover artists and they are in animation films that you and I would have seen or in all kinds of cartoons or things things like that. And their audiences expect a character to sound a certain way. And if we put them on some type of estrogen, either a low dose estrogen patch, the second part of their period, or put them on a birth control pill, uh, that really helps them maintain their vocal quality. Now, one thing about birth control pills that I will say, If you have singers in your audience, they need to make sure to have a discussion with their gynecologist about which pills are best, because there are a whole category, as you well know, of birth control pills that the progesterone in the pill really has come from a testosterone
0: derivative. And so you want to avoid those pills. What happens during pregnancy? Sky high estrogen levels, high progesterone levels. What does pregnancy do to the voice? It's, it's almost a wash uh, where the uh,
1: estrogen high levels maintains that beautiful, clear voice and the progesterone works its magic in other ways. But it's so outperformed, we'll say, by the estrogen that pregnant women tend to maintain their vocal
0: qualities. So let's move on to what happens during menopause, because the changes are more profound during menopause than you're going to see during a typical menstrual cycle, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. What happens to the voice during menopause? Most of us notice that we have
1: a deeper voice, uh, a more raspy voice, and then there's the onset of vocal fatigue. So those are the three big sound qualities that most of us notice. And again, uh, this happens because we no longer make any estrogen. We no longer make progesterone. And all the vocal cords see is testosterone. So under the influence of testosterone, the vocal cords don't lengthen. That's really only in the genetic male that that happens, but the vocal cords can thicken and then the surrounding tissues remodeling, we'll say, Mm -hmm. but testosterone also takes, because there's no estrogen, you don't get any of the glandular production of the mucus. So the vocal cords dry out and menopausal performers tend to have difficulty, especially Uh, sustaining high notes, but also those soft sounds that I think are critical uh, for the enjoyment of some pieces. uh, They just can't, they can't hit those soft notes and certainly can't maintain them.
0: You've already made the analogy of the throat and the vagina. So I'm, I'm going to go there again. We, we know that a lot of women, when they go through menopause, while they might have hot flashes immediately, very often the vulvar and vaginal changes don't occur right away, that they recur more remotely. And then over time, if they. If a woman chooses not to treat it, it gets progressively worse. Is that the same with the voice? Do these changes typically occur immediately, remotely? Do they stay the same once they change? Does it continue to get worse? That is absolutely right. The vocal cords do the exact same thing as the vagina.
1: It doesn't happen immediately. It happens over the course of eight to 10 to 12 years. And that's where performers will get into, I'll call it trouble because you the know, They'll go through perimenopause and menopause and they'll still be able to maintain their sound quality. They don't start on estrogen because their friends told them not to, or they read an article that you're not supposed to be on estrogen or it's bad for you. And so they'll be well into their fifties and then all of a sudden notice the vocal changes. So yes, it's, it's more of a insidious onset. Now the one, um, Uh, exception to that would be the women who are younger that go through menopause abruptly, those vocal
0: changes tend to occur more rapidly. During your lecture, you stated that the frequency of a voice can vary as much as 4% during someone's menstrual cycle, and then more than 7% post-menopause. Now, to someone who has a trained ear or to an opera singer I'm sure that that's something that would be extremely noticeable. Is that something that that the average listener would hear? No,
1: the app person, those kind of small changes are undetectable. But the audiences nowadays are extremely sophisticated. Plus, just like I have these headphones on, gamers and people who watch animation, their acoustics are so much enhanced. They can notice a difference of 1%. And so, for a performer, if your voice changes 7%, that could be career ending.
0: I was thinking earlier about how many men continue to sing and perform. To a pretty old age, you know, we got Paul McCartney. He's 80 now and he's still going strong. And I was trying to think about women and historically, particularly how many of them continued to perform as they got older. And I had a hard time coming up with, with women who, who continued to perform. And as a sweeping generalization, not all, but many of the women who continue to perform are overweight. And there's a common reference to the best opera singers being obese, being overweight. And of course, you and I know that women who are overweight make estrogen in their fat cells. That's why women who are overweight have increased risks of of breast cancer, uterine cancer, and other hormone-dependent cancers. Is it true that overweight singers are less likely to have these profound changes in their voice when they go through menopause? Absolutely. It's true. So I always tell people this
1: fat is good for something. The issue about body weight and the maintenance of vocal quality is very important because people all the time ask, well, how do you know these changes that the menopause voice uh, is uh, developing? How do you know those aren't age-related? Yeah. And we have cohorts of women who are postmenopausal, the same age as their normal body weight counterparts, but yet because their BMI is elevated or they're in the obese or overweight category, their vocal quality is very much maintained. So yes, that is an entity and it's exactly the uh, pathophysiology as you've laid out that our adipose tissue and the stroma around it convert androgens of various sorts into a weak form of estrogen and that helps us maintain our vocal quality.
0: Do you think it's intentional on the part of a singers to sometimes maintain a, a larger body weight to, to maintain their voice?
1: Well, I will I will say this. I I have a difficult conversation trying to tell them when there's a health-related issue uh, to try to cut back on their weight. Most of them are hesitant to do so. Uh, they like that. And, and again, it's not just about the voice. It is also has to do with chest mechanics. Uh, there is something about how that extra weight across the chest helps them acoustically, and that I can't speak to. But uh, there's, there's more than just making estrogen from their fat cells. They get a lot more resonance, I think, uh, they feel
0: when they're a little bit over their ideal body weight. And you mentioned that there are other things that could impact voice other than hormones, age being one, correct? Just aging Mm -hmm. in and of itself will change the voice. Other things that can impact on voice? Irritants can
1: impact your voice. So those of you who are concerned about uh, your vocal parameters, you want to avoid smoking. Vaping is horrible. That polythene glycol is like antifreeze for the vocal cords. Uh, There are medications that you want to avoid, testosterone being one of them. If, you know, Yes, it's important to uh, consider and have a discussion about testosterone if you have symptoms of low testosterone, but you have to weigh that against the consequences and the impact on your professional career. But other medications, and here's a cosmic irony, beta blockers, which are often used for stage fright, cause drying of your uh, vocal cords. So we usually try to avoid that in our elite voice professionals. Benadryl or the antihistamines, they cause our cilia to stop eating. So all our mucus in the back of our throat just sits there. And then you have uh, illnesses that can
0: uh, affect our voice. Hearing loss is probably the most common one. So midlife, roughly one out of 10 women will have alterations in her thyroid function. Does that have consequences on the voice as well? So both high and
1: low thyroid function has consequences on the voice. Uh, what is wonderful, though, about thyroid disorders is that within three to six months of getting the patient use thyroid, their vocal parameters will restore themselves. The main thing about thyroid and the voice is diagnosing the thyroid problem, treating the thyroid problem, and then letting the voice heal on their own. The vocal changes are not irreversible like they are with testosterone. But something as simple as GERD, uh, the esophageal reflux, that can cause vocal changes just because Mm. of the reflux on the vocal cords. And as it turns out, GERD is one of the leading causes of non-menopausal hot flashes,
0: You know, this is a recurrent theme with pretty much every topic I talk about is it's the old, is it menopause or is it midlife? Because understandably, most midlife women who are going through perimenopause and early postmenopause, whatever happens, they say, okay, this has to be because of menopause. And, And very often they are correct, but I think it's really important to keep in mind that you can have other medical situations, medications, and circumstances that can also be the reason why someone is is having problems or having these changes. That's exactly right. So often you get really thrown off because the
1: patient's coming in. She's having vocal changes. She's having hot flashes, and it's not her
0: menopause. It's, no, you it's can put her on uh, estrogen, yes. and that's not going to help. If that's yeah, exactly exactly yeah. yeah. No, so speaking of estrogen, so all right. Opera singer walks into your office, rock star walks into your office, country western singer walks into your office. She hasn't had a period in nine, 10 months. She's flashing like crazy and she tells you, my voice is changing. What are you going to tell that woman? She is a candidate for estrogen on multiple levels. And I think we
1: have a lot of data that her her vocal parameters particularly can be restored within a 12-month period. Patients will start to see improvement in four to six months after we put them on estrogen therapy. And it turns out that it doesn't matter which delivery system she chooses. You know, she can take an estrogen pill. She can take an estrogen patch. She can use a cream. Uh,
0: she, she, all so those. When you, when you say cream, you're talking about a systemic level cream, a transdermal. A product. Systemic. Thank Correct. you. A systemic yes. level cream. Absolutely. So it doesn't matter um, if it's a patch, a gel, a spray, a cream, anything that's transdermal and systemic or oral systemic right. is going to do the trick.
1: Right. So it's something like the fem ring that goes in the vagina for three months. That'll work. We, estrogen can fix over 73% of our vocal
0: performers. I'm surprised it's only 73%. Is that because some people wait too long or it's because they have other things that are impacting on their voice, like age or some of the other factors you talked about?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a combination, but it I hate to admit it, it is because a lot of people wait too long, and yeah. by the time we get them, it's just
0: it's hard to reverse some of those changes. Yeah. You and I both know that healthcare professionals are not in the know, and even menopause experts. I consider myself to be a menopause expert and know nothing about this. But what about professional singers? I mentioned to you that I'd had dinner with a professional opera singer last year. And I asked her, are you aware of the changes that occur when an opera singer goes through menopause? And she said, well, of course I am. And of course I'm taking estrogen. And so are all of my colleagues. And I thought, okay, well, she knows a lot more than, than doctors know. Is that unusual? Or would you say that that most professional female singers are aware of this? I think for the most part, they are aware.
1: Absolutely.
0: So when you say that some of them are delayed in getting the treatment, Is it because they run up to the roadblock that I talk about all the time that they go see their gynecologist who is not comfortable with hormone therapy and scares them away And they just say, okay, well, I guess I have to pick between my career and dying a horrible death from multiple cancers and blood clots, et cetera, and all the other (laughs) misinformation they're getting. And that's what keeps them from getting the treatment they need early on. If this is something that's known in the professional vocal community, I can't imagine why else these women would, would not be automatically requesting hormone therapy.
1: Yes, I I hate to lay this at the door of the Women's Health Initiative, but that really did such a disservice, not to women in general but also to the doctors that trained because we now have an entire generation of physicians who are uninformed about Mm -hmm. the pros and cons of estrogen, and they don't feel comfortable prescribing it. To their credit, there are some residency programs around the country, the one here in Dallas at UT Southwestern and Parkland. For the first time, I was invited to go down and start giving Lectures about menopause. So we are making inroads.
0: Well, you're much more optimistic than I am. Did you not see that article (laughs) that was just published in the journal Menopause this month? This month. I mentioned it on on an episode a couple of weeks ago that, oh my God, only one third of of OBGYN residencies in the United States have any kind of menopause curriculum at all. So your institution is definitely in the minority. And where even the institutions that are learning a little something about menopause, they're certainly not learning about nuances like this. We still have a long ways to go before we're going to have doctors that are giving the right information to their patients. So we just have to keep doing our job and screaming and yelling at about it all the time. Very often we see women who, again, you know, throat, vagina, we're there again, but the only symptom they have is vulvar or vaginal dryness and irritation and pain with intercourse. And of course, if that's their only symptom, they very often will choose to use a local vaginal estrogen. Is there an equivalent to vaginal estrogen for the vocal cords?
1: Oftentimes
0: we'll talk to our
1: vocal uh, professionals about intranasal estrogen. The problem with that is it kind of tastes nasty, but it's, you know, some people are like, this is
0: worth it and I will, I will do it. So, Why intranasal as opposed to just spraying it directly down the throat? So the studies that were done
1: in the 1980s and the 1990s, and there are a paucity of them, I will tell you that, uh, they used intranasal. And the thinking was, is that with one of the little spray kind of tips that tip down, uh, that they could get a straighter shot to the vocal cords as opposed to just spraying it in the back of your throat like chloroceptic, which most of it will end up on the posterior pharynx. And we don't have any studies that oral will not work. It's just that when they studied it, they studied it with the little curved Q-tip. With the curve thing.
0: And is this done on a daily basis, a couple of times, yes. week, like vaginal? It's a daily basis
1: until they reestablish their vocal parameters. And then we can sometimes
0: cut back and put them just on it twice a week As you bring up, just like the vagina. There are no FDA approved intranasal estrogens available. So if a singer is interested in using an intranasal estrogen, how would she go about getting that? That has to be compounded. And the
1: dose uh, that I and Dr. Kirkham use are 300 micrograms in a spray. And it's a spray in one nostril every day after four to six months. If your ear, nose and throat doctor rechecks or vocal parameters. And to be honest, most voice professionals know their voice as well as the ENT and certainly better than the gynecologist but we make them go in twice a year for vocal parameters when they're uh, undergoing therapy until their voice is
0: until their vocal parameters are restored so if estrogen levels drop there's a significant impact on the voice which can in most cases be restored with estrogen therapy but that's not the case with testosterone if you withdraw testosterone you're still going to end up with those thick vocal cords. That's not as reversible because I'm thinking about women who get testosterone therapy, either for gender reaffirming or for another reason, and their voice is lower. And when they go off their testosterone, that is not reversible, correct? That's exactly right. So the changes to the vocal cords uh, that occur
1: with puberty in the male, are they're not reversible. And then later in life, that's one of the risks we talk to women about when they go on testosterone is that if they have vocal changes, Those are irreversible. Mm. There are some surgeries that some ear, nose and throat doctors have tried to shorten or thin out the vocal cords in patients who want gender affirming uh, surgery, but those are
0: woefully unsuccessful. You've already established that the gynecologists know nothing about this. And we know that you have a program, of course, so that the ENT you work with is, but in general... Are most ENTs familiar with the relationship of menopause and voice changes? Oh gosh, you know, I'm spoiled because I'm here in Dallas and we
1: have two wonderful ear, nose and throat, one at UT Southwestern, Dr. Childs, and then Dr. Arvisio at Baylor. They were both Disney characters or one went to Vanderbilt and majored in voice. So they became ear, nose and throat doctors because of their love of voice. So they both have voice centers as well as Dr. Kirkham. So, again, it's just skewed here in Dallas. We're very voice prominent, uh, but I I can't speak for other parts of the
0: country. Well, I I think one of the ways that you know what's going on in the rest of the country is how many out of towners you get coming to your program. Good point. That's a good point. Well, we get a lot. So there you've answered your question. When I opened the menopause center in Chicago when we found that roughly 30% of our patients were coming in from out of state and it's because they were not able to get menopause care where they were. So that's always a good litmus test of of what's going on in in the rest of, of the country. I know you're doing some research.
1: So there is a large consortium uh, that's NIH-funded. It's called the Bridge to AI, and, and they're trying to use voice as a biomarker of health. And there are researchers and doctors all over the United States that are using um the voice and machine learning or artificial intelligence to analyze voice changes. Uh, For instance, they now can use voice changes to diagnose Parkinson's disease 10 years before patients manifest a tremor or six years before a patient with dementia starts uh, manifesting symptoms of cognitive decline, mental health, they're able to analyze the voice. Um, And then uh, also uh, psychiatric illnesses. They are, it's not just voice, but also speech patterns that they're analyzing to tell about uh, schizophrenia and depression. So this idea of using the voice as a biomarker of health is really leading the way with this research. My particular interest is in trying to help the young women who have no idea that menopause is coming, those patients who undergo premature or primary ovarian insufficiency at age 24, 28, if there would be some way that we could use a voice analysis to give them a little bit of a heads up that, you know, their ovaries may not be functioning as well as we all think. Uh, So that's what my interest is, is trying to help
0: that aspect. All right. So the obvious question is if you can predict, if you will, or working on predicting what someone's ovarian function is going to be based on the voice, how about fertility? Do you have any information at all about someone's fertility based on voice changes? No, I do not. Because it's kind of an interesting thought. Because it's if, if a we're huge saying thought. Because if we're saying that subtle changes in hormones can be detected in the voice before they're even detected clinically. And you know we're always looking for ways to help women figure out, can they delay pregnancy? We use some markers uh, and some other parameters to look at ultrasound parameters, but wouldn't it be interesting if part of the research was to correlate when there are voice changes and someone's ovulatory function and the health of their ovary. And there's no end to what we can do. That's such fascinating research. Before we end this, because I could talk to you forever about this stuff. I just want to mention that when I was reading your bio, something else jumped out at me, that you are also an expert on health and sickness in the novels of Jane Austen and other 18th and 19th century British authors. And as an ex-English major, I thought, oh my God, we have to do another a whole nother segment on that. So promise me you'll come back I will absolutely come back because again, once you hear
1: how women, menopausal women were treated in the Regency and Victoria period, estrogen will look better and better.
0: Well, it already looks pretty good to me. (laughs) Yes. Thank you for spending this time with me and thank you for the work that you do. It's really fantastic to know that for women whose professions depend on maintaining their premenopausal voice, that there are safe and effective options to prevent or even reverse those midlife hormonal changes, which may be career-ending. And ongoing research using voice as a biomarker for multiple medical conditions is really exciting. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com and follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of.